For the past month, we've been looking at the life of David, and we come to Saul, who is the first king of Israel. Saul eventually becomes this power-hungry, abusive tyrant, and his life spirals down into tragedy. That's basically what happens, but it doesn't start out like that. That's not how Saul's life starts out. If you go back and read the first parts of this book, 1 Samuel, particularly chapters 8 through 11, you find out that Saul's a very decent person. He's a decent individual. He's a dynamic person. He's an attractive person. He's tall and he's handsome. He's a religious man. He's a good man. In fact, when he becomes king, he's actually, he feels unworthy. He's humble at first. And, and as he begins to accrue power, instead of turning on his opponents to people who actually rejected him or didn't want him as king, he was merciful to them. He's a decent person. And yet, his life spirals down eventually into pride, into anger, into evil, into jealousy, into murder. How do you do that? How does that happen? And a few of those answers are right here in this text. And we're going to go through them quickly. Okay? I want you to brace yourselves because I don't want to alarm you, but there are five quick things. They're quick, five quick things. I tried to make it as cute and memorable as possible. They all start with the letter C. Okay? In fact, we're going to see the letter C all the way through. You're going to be fixated on the letter C today, okay? Um, We're going to see the context for Saul's turn, his capacity for sin, which means our capacity, the characteristics of that, the root cause of that, and the cure for it. The context, the capacity, the characteristics, the cause, and the cure. Okay, first, we're going to go into the context Saul has been given, uh, this is, I'm just going to kind of give you an overview of what's going on here. Saul has been given the direction from God. And you see this summarized at the top of chapter 15. Um, Verse 18 kind of summarizes it. The Amalekites, they're this neighboring tribe. Um, And God says to Saul, the king, he says, I want you to engage them in battle. Why? Because they're violent. They're a neighboring tribe, they're dangerous, and they're just given to extreme violence. So what I want you to do is I want you to engage them in battle, I want you to defeat them, and I don't want you to leave a single person alive. I don't want you to leave a single animal alive. I want you to destroy the king. I want you to defeat them, destroy everybody there. But what Saul does instead is he keeps the best of the livestock. It's an agrarian culture back then. Your livestock demonstrated how much wealth you had. He keeps the best of the livestock. He keeps the best of the capital, and he keeps the king alive. Agag, he keeps him alive. Now, when you hear this, it's easy for us in our modern culture or modern society to say, well, why would God want everybody dead? That sounds terrible. It sounds old-fashioned and cruel, um, outdated almost. But you have to put yourself into the context of what's going on because otherwise you're going to run the risk of saying that your culture is more superior than their culture right? And above that, you're going to miss out on the wisdom that God had here, what he was really saying to Saul here. When God says, I want you to destroy everything, I want you to destroy everyone, what he's saying is, I want this to be an act of justice. I don't want you to be about what the surrounding kings are about. The surrounding kings would go into a land, imperialistically, they would go in, they would take over a culture, they would take the women and the children as slaves, kill off the men, kill the king, accrue all the wealth, rape and pillage and plunder. That's what they would do. He says, that's not what I want you to do. That's not what my king is going to do. My king is an embodiment of who I am. I want this to be an act of justice. 
I don't want you to take on the wealth because I am your wealth. I don't want, I don't want you to take on power. My king is going to live humbly, modestly, and is going to be about justice. I want you to be a generous king. I want you to be a humble king. I want you to be a modest king. I want you to be a just king. So this is going to be purely an act of justice because I want you to deal with the violence and the injustice that's in the world. So you're not going to profit at all from this. But Saul disobeys. And by doing that, he becomes just like the Amalekites. And God warned against this. You know, the Israelites, they were clamoring for a king, and God warned against this very thing. And here's Saul, the first king, becomes like the Amalekites. He's acting just the way they act. He acts in a way that God spoke against that. And in many ways, Saul adapted to the culture around him, and as a result, Israel adapted to the violence and the greediness and the power-hungry condition, the human condition here. God says, I'm going to reject him as king. That's the context. First point, very quick, four to go, right? Second point, the capacity, our capacity for evil, the capacity of Saul to fall. Notice later on in verse 19, Samuel asks a question. Why didn't you obey the instructions of the Lord? And Saul responds. He doesn't give him a very elaborate answer. He says, I did, but I did listen to the Lord. I did listen to the voice of the Lord. Now, you need to know that there's no word for the word obey in Hebrew. Anytime you see in the text the word obey, in Hebrew, it's much more metaphorical than our language here. Um, The word, the phrase is, why did you not listen to the voice of the Lord? Why did you not heed why did, not, why did God's voice not sink in? Saul says, I did listen to the voice of the Lord. Samuel comes back and says, well, you say you listened. Maybe you did listen, but you didn't really listen. You didn't really hear. Because to listen to the voice of the Lord is greater than sacrifice. To truly grasp the voice of the Lord, to be affected by what you heard, it's greater than the fat of rams. That's what he says. In other words, you can really hear right? You can really hear on one level, but not really hear, turn deaf on another level. And that's called self-deception. That's, that's our capacity. And this is the picture of the human heart. We, the human condition, we have an amazing capacity to hide the truth about ourselves from ourselves. We have an amazing capacity to do that. And that's the main reason why we're always given to make unwise decisions We lie, we speak out of our ego, we're impulsive, we commit evils and atrocities that we never thought we'd be able to commit, and yet we do. We know, and yet we don't know ourselves. And we hide from ourselves, and we run from ourselves. And that explains how so many decent people actually do such evil things. That's the second point. We have an amazing capacity to deceive ourselves, now, what happened here? Let's look at the characteristics. That's the third point. How does this look? Samuel comes and he sees Saul. Verse 13, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, now we've got to stop right there, right? Because this is not a very normal conversation, what you hear here, what you read here, right? Think about this. You know, Samuel reached him and then Saul spoke, right? He says, I have obeyed the instructions of the Lord. I listened to the instructions of the Lord. I committed the instructions of the Lord. Now, think about this. If you're a parent and you have a child, and a child does something wrong, 
right? Let's say the child's doing something wrong in a room and you come into the room. The first thing they do is they, they kind of put their hands behind their, their they kind of arrest themselves, right, in a, in a sense, right? And, and they look at you and they say, I didn't do anything wrong. Now, that's a very abnormal conversation, right? You might have been going in there to adjust the windows or do something else, but the first thing they say to you is, I didn't do anything wrong. You know, when a child says that to you, right, they did something wrong, right? They're up to no good. You know that. When you hear that, what does that mean? The first thing that Saul says when he comes out, he says, I just want you to know, Samuel, that I listened to the voice of God. I listened to him. I obeyed. Samuel didn't say anything. What does that mean? Saul's conscience is acting up. And his conscience is acting up, and he knows deep inside. On one level, he knows. But he still doesn't know. That's self-deception. And he's ignoring the symptoms, the characteristics that lead us into the downfall. The first characteristic is we know something, but we ignore our conscience. We know something is wrong. But we deflect, we ignore our conscience. Saul says, I did listen. I did obey. It's because his conscience was acting up. And yet, he ignored it. Therefore, I'm going to give you four very quick kind of personal examples of this, okay? The first, um, my mother is at an age where we have to be a lot more conscious, conscious about uh, health, her health, the implications of her health. You know, when you're 20 and you're not feeling good, you probably have the flu. But when you're 70 and you don't feel good, you might have pneumonia, right? That's deadly at that age. When you're 20 and you're tired, it's probably because you pulled one too many all-nighters. But when you're 70 and you're fatigued, you could have cancer. You get what I'm saying, right? So my mom's at that age where we have to be a lot more conscious for her about her health. And when my mom has prolonged pain, the first thing we always say is, listen, you have health insurance, let's go. Let's go to the hospital but she always refuses. She always fights. She's always resistant. It's so counterintuitive because you're not healthy. You don't look good. You don't feel well. And it's been prolonged. We should go. She always refuses. I initially thought it must be because she's tired. It's a hassle. But I sat her down and we talked about this one time. And she said, you know what it is? I don't want to know what I have. I'm afraid. Because I actually might have something. Her conscience is telling her of the possibility. And what is she doing? She's running. She's hiding. She doesn't want to know. Okay? I'm going to give you another example. Here you have parents. They have a son, and their son is drinking heavily. They know. Their son drinks heavily. They see the clues around the house. He parties all the time. And they confront him, and they say, you know, do you have a problem? You know, it's kind of unusual to ask a person who has a problem. You know, these things are, we self-deceive, right? We, we don't know even though we know. Do you have a problem? And the son looks and he says, I don't have a problem. You know, I, I got it under control. What do they do? They say, okay. They go back. And every weekend, they, they, they wake up to hear the sound of him coming in late at night, and they, and they hear all the clues again. But what do they do? They turn over on their sides. They go back to sleep. What are they doing? Their conscience has woken them up. They deflect it. They ignore it. Let me give you another example. All right, third example. Here's a woman, desperate for a relationship, okay? Desperate, desiring a relationship. She goes where all the men are all the time. She goes to all the parties. She goes to all the lounges. And she meets a guy. She hooks up with the guy, right? You didn't know I knew, I knew that phrase, right? She hooks up with the guy, right? Uh, and uh, <laughs> am I using it right? Um, 
And、um, she introduces、uh, this guy to her friends. And her friends, the moment they meet him, they know this guy's no good. They know this guy. He's got a terrible reputation. They know she's being played. Right? So they confront her. They tell her that. You know, this guy doesn't really care about you. You're just fun and you're just sex for him. She knows. But then he says all the right things. In her heart, she knows the guy doesn't want a long term relationship. She's just fun for him. She's just sex for him. She doesn't know, though, but she knows, right? The fourth one, completely different level.、Uh, fourth example, I took this from someone else. I had to actually look this up because I thought the account was so amazing. Near the end of World War II,、um, the first town in Germany whose concentration camps were actually liberated is Ordruf. Ordruf. Uh, the German guards, what they did was knowing that the Allies were coming, they were trying to get rid of the evidence. So, what they did was they exhumed 2,000 bodies from the ground and they threw them into ovens. They were trying to, trying to create a huge train of just bodies thrown into ovens, right? But the Allies got there while they were doing this. They didn't, they didn't accomplish what they were trying to do. And it was, apparently, it was an unbelievable sight. I saw these pictures online, it was horrible. And they said it was so bad, two hours later, General George Patton, I mean, his nickname is Blood and Guts. Okay, this guy, he is a very, very hard general. They said when he entered into that space, he came out and he vomited because it was so disgusting. He was so astonished. And he was so angered by it. What he did was he went into town. He said, These townspeople must have known. So he goes into the town and he talks to the townsfolk, and they all claim ignorance. Yeah, we don't really know. We don't really know. He said, No, I know you knew. So, what did he do? This guy was tough. He brought the entire town into Ordruf, and he said, Today, in one day, you have one day to dig up all, to basically dig graves for all these bodies that are left. And literally, through the entire day, the entire town, including the mayor and his wife, took the time to dig graves for these bodies. And at the end of the night, the mayor and his wife went back home, and they hung themselves. And they left a note. And what did the note say? We didn't know, but we knew. Think about this. If our modern era, the most scientific, empirical, educated, technologically and culturally advanced era in human history is capable of this kind of violence, it can't, what does this tell you? It can't be because there's a lack of science or empiricism or education or technology or culture. It can't be because there's a lack of that. The same thing that enabled people to commit these global atrocities is the same thing that keeps my mom from wanting to admit I might be sick. It's the same thing that keeps parents from admitting my son may be an addict. It's the same thing that keeps a woman from admitting, you know what, I might just be desperate for love. That's my pathology. We have an amazing capacity. To hide the truth from ourselves. And we ignore it. We, we ignore our conscience. That's one of the characteristics. I'm going to briefly go through the other, a couple other characteristics that we see here. In verse 14, Samuel says, What then is the bleeding of sheep that I hear? The lowing of cows, cattle that I hear? In Hebrew, what Saul says in response is, he says, I listen to the voice of the Lord. There's this irony of going on, going on here, right? Samuel says, you know, Saul says, I listened. Samuel says, You listened? You really did? So there's an irony going on. He says, You listened, huh? Because what do I listen to? I hear cattle. I hear sheep. Did you really listen? 
That's what he's saying here. Saul says in response, amazing, what he says is, oh, the soldiers brought them, right? In, in the actual Hebrew, in the actual text, he doesn't even say the soldiers brought them. That was for us to understand context. What he actually says is, because he doesn't want to name it, he doesn't want to throw anybody under the bus, probably because there wasn't anybody. He says they brought them. You know who they are, right? Where'd you hear that? Oh, they told me. Or they say this. They're the ones that gossip. They're the ones that, you know, are fake. They're the religious ones, right? They're, they're the ones you can't ever put a name or a face to those people. Saul says it's that vague third-person plural. He says they brought them. You know how those people are. He's shifting blame. He's deflecting attention. So on one hand, we ignore conscience. On the other hand, we, we shift blame to other people. Right? That's my mom saying, you're so dramatic. You're always thinking the worst of me. I'm not that old. I may be dramatic. I may be thinking the worst, but it doesn't mean you're not sick, right? Um, that's the parents of the son saying, oh, it's his friends. He's got such bad friends. And these parties, there's alcohol everywhere. And that may be true, but it doesn't mean your son is not an addict. That's the woman saying, I was deceived. He's a womanizer. He deceived me. That may be true but it doesn't mean you didn't know. It's the art of misdirection. We concentrate on the weakness of the circumstances. We concentrate on the weakness of people who are involved, all to avoid the truth about ourselves. That's how we get away from accepting the truth about ourselves. We blame other people. Now, the third thing Saul says, he says, yes, finally he says, I did keep those animals. But Samuel, I'm going to offer these things to the Lord. What is he doing? Saul's a religious man. He's very religious. He's a good person. He's hiding behind his religiosity. He's hiding behind his morality. He says, Samuel, we're going to have a great service with this. He's justifying himself. We do that all the time. You know, another way to put that is um, religion is to take our moral goodness and confuse it with faith in the Lord. That's what religion is. You take your moral goodness and you're confusing it with your faith in Christ, your faith in the Lord. And it's really another way of deceiving ourselves about the truth about ourselves. There are millions of people right now, there are millions of people all around the world right now, in this country alone, right now, at this hour, hiding behind their goodness as a way of saying, you know what, see, I'm okay. This is why I'm okay. By the way, on the other hand, there's a lot of irreligious people at this very hour who don't believe in the Bible who look at all of us hypocrites and say, see, that's why I don't go to church. You know, what's the point? I don't want to go to church because they're all hypocrites. I don't trust the church. You see, self-justification is the greatest contributor for our self-deception regarding our pride, regarding our evil, regarding our selfishness. You see that? You see where it can lead you? Some of us here, um, we cheat in our business. But... You know how we get around that? We say, well, but see, I'm not fleecing people like the way Enron fleeced people, right? These guys, you know, like these mortgage lenders a few years ago, they were cheating people out of hundreds of millions of dollars. Think about it. You know what those, you know what Enron, the people in Enron said? They said the same thing. They said, you see, yeah, I understand I did that. I made a lot of big mistakes, but at least I'm not killing people like the mafia for money, just for money. They're, they actually literally killed these people. But you know what the mafia guys are saying? The mafia guys are saying, well, yeah, I kill people, but it's not like I'm like a serial killer, you know? The people that I killed, they deserve to die. They were dirty people. I had to get rid of them. 
You know what serial killers are saying? <laughs> serial killers, they're, they're saying, yeah, I killed people. They may not have deserved it, but I'm not like Hitler. Hitler always gets the end of it, right? <laughs> you know what Hitler said? I don't know what Hitler said. I don't know what Hitler said. But he said something. I guarantee you he didn't say, I did it because I'm an evil man. I guarantee you he, that's what he, he didn't say that, right? Nobody does that, and that's the point. That's the point. Decent people get there because they're systematically and methodically they're hiding from our sin. That's what we do. And it makes it possible for the nicest, most moral people to go all the way down to the depths. You know, if you're thinking right now, if I only have like religion, you know, these people, they're pretty religious. If I could just be like them, you know, guys, think about this, okay? Wars, rapes, atrocities around the world right now are happening because of religion, in the name of religion. Until you identify how your own self-deception is working in your life and put an end to it, you are capable of the worst things. We're all capable of that. Don't kid yourself. The human heart has an incredible capacity to hide from itself the truth about ourselves. You can ignore your conscience, blame other people, and justify all the way down to the depths. Okay? That's the biggest point. Now, the fourth is, what's the cause of that? Why do we do that? You have to know why we run from certain truths about ourselves. There's lots of truths that we don't hide. There's lots of truths that we're willing to accept. But then there's certain truths that we're not willing to accept about ourselves. And we need to know why. And the answer is, is where Samuel finally says to Saul, interestingly, here he says in verse 17, Though you were once small in your own eyes, didn't God anoint you as king? Though you were once small in your eyes, but the Lord has made you great. Why does he say this? And the answer actually resides all the way in the beginning of this passage in verse 12. When Samuel's looking for Saul, here he is in verse 12, he's looking for Saul, and he finds out where's Saul. He had gone to Carmel, and there he set up a monument in his own honor. That's what happened. Right from the beginning, and Saul, Samuel knows this, and now after hearing the bleeding of sheep, the, low, the lowing of cattle, and hearing Saul and the way he's responding to him, the way he's ignoring his conscience, the way, the way he's blaming other people and justifying his, his, his himself, Samuel says, you were once small in your own eyes. You're still small in your eyes, Saul. That's the problem. Didn't God anoint you as king? Didn't God bless you? Didn't God make you great? Why did Saul keep Agag the king? You know why? Think about it. If you're a king and your neighboring kings are in prison, your prison, that makes you the king of kings. I mean, if they're just prisoners in your system, what does that make you? So much greater. You are a king of kings. That's why he's keeping him alive. Samuel says, Saul, you were once small in your eyes. God made you great. You were were still small. You were so insecure. You have such a small view of yourself. You live such a small life, even as king. God appointed you as king, and yet you live a small life. That's why you keep the plunder. That's why you kept the livestock. That's why you're building monuments. That's why you kept Agag alive. You're still trying to make yourself great, aren't you? You're trying to look great in your own eyes. You're still trying to convince yourself that you are great. God says, you're doing things to make yourself feel great. That's the reason why Samuel says, you know, he says later on uh, in verse 
Verse uh, 23 says, it's your arrogance, Saul. Your arrogance. It's a form of idolatry. Here's what went wrong with Saul. This is what's going wrong with us. Saul fell into self-deception. We easily deceive ourselves. We do that all the time. Think about this way. If you knew, you know, if God is the monument that you set up, if he's the reason why you feel and you know you're great, God's love, God's value of you, God's honor of you, God's delighting in you, if you knew the truth of that, if that's your monument, then you can handle a lot of bad news about yourself to the degree that you know that you are loved by God, the great king of kings. You can handle a lot of bad news about yourself, anything about yourself. That truth would not destroy you because you know it's not going to undo God's love for you. It's not going to undo it. It's sealed. It's promised. You would know that it's banked on God's love, his faithfulness, his goodness, his sense of justice. But what if your monument to your own honor is your children? What if that's your monument? What happens then? You're never going to be able to accept anything about yourself. You're not going to be able to accept anything about your child. If your child is your monument held up in your own honor, if someone criticizes your child, oh, they're tearing down your monument. They're tearing you down. You see how that works? If your monument is your reputation, you have a rep to uphold, and you don't like it when people say things about you. If that's your monument, the moment someone says even something slightly against you, slight criticism, even something that wasn't intended to be a criticism, oh, that's going to tear your monument down, and it's going to bring you down. You're not going to be able to accept any information that jeopardizes your monument. This, by the way, is how you know you have a monument in your own honor. When you can't accept the truth about something, that thing is your monument. Okay, I've known people who are absolutely miserable, who come to church, and they enjoy it for a while. They come to church, they like church for a while, and then the misery that they had from the beginning starts to come out. And one thing goes wrong in the church, and they blame the entire church. They blame the people. You've probably experienced that. I've seen that. Um, and that operates at an even lower level. I'm going to tell you a very personal story, okay? I don't normally do this, but I'm gonna, it's, it's too hard to pass up. I, used to, I lived in Boston for 11 years, okay? And um, people would visit me in Boston. Now, if you know anything about the roads in Boston, they're very, very, you know, maps aren't very helpful, okay? Because um, it's very, you kind of go by feel in Boston, and, um, we, you know, we, the first thing you do, you want to take them to a nice restaurant, eat together, show them the scene, show them the town. And you're driving around, I'm looking for this restaurant, and I'm, I was like, I know, I could have sworn the restaurant was right around here, and, and, but you can't find it, you don't see it, and you start to sweat, right? So you're driving around, this happens to me all the time, forget about Boston, it happens to me here, I'm, I have a terrible sense of direction, I can't find this place. Now, my wife, the very logical, gentle person that she is, she says, well, maybe we should ask for directions. Maybe we just pull, if it's around here, we should just ask somebody where it is. You know, what do I do? I don't even, I ignore her, right? My conscience is acting up, right? And I ignore it, and I just keep driving, right? Men, we, you feeling me here? We, we do this often, right? And you, you know, so maybe, so you hear, maybe we should just pull over and just ask that person who's walking along the side, you know? Maybe we should just ask them, what do you do? I could have sworn it's around here somewhere. You don't even, you don't even think about, uh, you know, what, you, the, the words don't even go in, right? Now, why do we do this? Okay, this is where it gets a little bit more serious, okay? Um, why, do, why do we do this? 
something as simple and stupid as this, right? I've been to so many places in business. I've been all around the world. I've been all around the country. And I've driven to a lot of places. I've been in Boston for 11 years. I've driven all the way around Boston. I know it like, I think I know it like the back of my hand. I grew up in this area. I grew up in uh, Fort Washington, that area. So, you know, there was a time when I take pride in just knowing all the nooks and crannies of that area, right? Men are supposed to know how to get to places, right? That's some unstated truth. We're supposed to know how to get to places. It's so very simple, but it's so nuanced, right? So when you're driving around, you're lost, and your wife says, we should ask for directions. What What are you hearing? You're not man enough to get from point A to point B. That's what I'm hearing, right? Foolish, right? I just saw a lot of women just go, like, is there a fly buzzing around? Or, you know, I, you know, <laughs> you know um, now, what's happening there? I'm very small in my own eyes. I can't accept the truth. It's just better to ask for help, right? These things are the smallest, the smallest things, even the smallest things in our lives, they're monuments. Saul heard but he didn't hear that God had anointed him as king, that God delights in him, delighted in him, right? He knew, but he didn't really know that God honored him. He didn't need a monument in his own honor. God honored him. He knew it on one level, but it didn't grip him. You understand that? To know, but to not really know. And uh, if you don't accept the good news, you can't accept any of the bad news. You're going to work, you're going to sacrifice, you're going to labor to get rid of the bad news, to hide the bad news, because you're never going to be able to get rid of it. Not the truth about ourselves. That value, that love of God, the love that God has for you, the value that God has in you, it's all, if you have that, it's really hard to admit that your son is an alcoholic, but you can admit it, and you can do the right thing about it. It's really hard to admit how desperate we are. But you can. You have courage to do that. The Spirit of God resides and dwells in, and yet there's indwelling sin, but the Spirit of God is dwelling, and you can. You have courage. You have strength. If God is not the honor that you seek, if the gospel, the cross, is not the monument, then something else is going to be your monument. You know, for Saul, it was military success, his political power. These things became idols in his life to the point of murder, to the degree of murder later on. We'll see this. Right? Why? Because it shows him I'm intelligent, I'm resourceful. I'm more than just a tall, handsome man, even though I'm a tall, handsome man. Right? I can rule. You know? And that, you know, what he wanted to believe about himself, what he established as a monument in his own honor, it was ruining his life, it was twisting his life, it was blinding him. It was deceiving him. What about you? What's blinding and twisting you right now? What's doing that? What's the cure? Last point. Fifth point. It didn't sink into Saul how loved he was, right? But you and I have a resource for understanding the grace of God, the love of God, that even Saul didn't have. Saul didn't have the resource that we have. What is that resource? I'm going to read briefly. Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. 
I have come to do your will. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Once and for all. You know what that means? Samuel says, God doesn't care. He doesn't want sacrifices and rituals. He wants obedience. He wants you. Jesus says, you don't really care about sacrifices and offerings. I will obey. You want that. That's amazing. They're saying virtually the same thing. Thousands of years apart, they're saying the exact same thing. If that's what God really wants, you know, if that's what God really wants from us, obedience, then we're all dead. We don't have any hope. Just like Saul, we're dead. Because we're so self-deceived and we're so disobedient. That self-deception leads to such disobedience. You can't earn your holiness. Nobody can earn holiness. Ah, but Jesus. But Jesus Christ, he didn't obey to become holy. The one person who could, he didn't obey to become holy. The Hebrew writer, the writer of this book of Hebrews, in chapter 10, what he was saying was, Jesus obeyed not to become holy, but to make us holy to make us righteous, to garner us the approval of God. That's why we build monuments, right? For cosmic approval. All that approval that we're seeking, it's because deep inside, there's a cosmic approval that we really want. And we're paying a price for that. We pay a price. Our families pay the price for us in doing that. We sacrifice our bodies, our labor, our time, our resources, everything that we've got, our emotional stability at times. But when Jesus Christ died, he was the perfect obedience. He was the perfect sacrifice. He delighted God. He sacrificed his body. Why? So that we didn't have to sacrifice our souls, our bodies. He took our place. Why? Why did he take our place? God delighted. God was absolutely delighted with him. God was absolutely delighted with the sacrifice. So when we believe in him, he can be delighted in you. That's the reason why. He can be delighted in you. In other words, Jesus Christ, he was great. Philippians chapter 2, in your call to worship, you read this. He was great. But what happened? He became small. Philippians chapter 2, it's all about that. Jesus, in Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is the radiance of God, the exact representation of his being. Hebrews chapter uh, chapter 1 says that. But Philippians chapter 2 says he emptied himself of that glory. He's the exact radiance of the Shekinah glory of God, and yet he emptied himself. He was great, and yet became small, so that we, although we are small, even in our own eyes, are great in the eyes of God, honored, delighted in God. And when we believe in him, when we believe, you know, God accepts me not because of the good things that I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Not because of the good person that I am, but because the person of Jesus we literally rid ourselves of the need for sacrifice. You know what that means? The Bible says every believer is a king. First Peter chapter 2, you are a royal priesthood. Second Corinthians chapter 1 says you are anointed. You know what that means? If you, we don't have a kingdom here. There's, this is a democracy. But if you, if you lived in an era of kingdoms, if you look at other kingdoms around the world, if you look at the coronations and the wealth and the exaltation and the praise that these earthly kings receive in history, it's nothing compared to what we have in Christ, to what we will have in Christ. We are going to rule kings and priests. We're going to be clean, made righteous, and we are going to rule and reign with him forever. 
Think, in a billion years, we're not going to study the Roman Empire. We study the Roman Empire today. We're not going to study the Roman Empire a billion years from now, right? Because they pale in comparison. These earthly monuments, they're going to pass away, including all the monuments that we hold here. That should free you. That should liberate you. That's one monument that, you know, that we need, that we can't build, that we didn't build, but it was built for us. That's the cross. The cross is our monument. If that truth, the truth of the gospel, sinks down, the promise of God, the character of Christ, the person of Christ, the accomplished work of Christ, if you're melted by that, the first thing you realize is in your work right now, I'm building monuments. In my life right now, I am building a monument for myself in my own honor. But the gospel melts away that self-deception. You know, your tendency to, to ignore your conscience and blame other circumstances and other people and to justify yourself, the gospel clears away the self-deception so that you can see that you are trying to build a monument for yourself and you will have courage to listen to that, to not shift blame, to accept the truth about who you are. The gospel shapes us. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, a monument will be raised in my honor. What was that monument? He was talking about the cross. And when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is that here I am, the high exalted king, and I've been brought down, forgotten, forsaken. Why? So you will eternally be remembered. On the cross, he's dying. And that one criminal says, remember me. Remember me. You are remembered. He says, today you will be with me. Remember me. God said, I don't want you to spare any loot. I don't want you to spare any person. I don't want you to spare the king. Why? What Samuel was saying to Saul was, Saul, God didn't care about the cattle. He doesn't care about the sheep. He wants you. That's what he wants. You gave him the sheep, but you never gave him you. That's the problem. Why didn't he? He withheld the right. Why didn't he? You withhold yourself when we don't want to be owned. You don't realize how beautiful it is to be owned by the king, by God. You've got to weigh out the implications of being owned. When you do that, there's no need for a monument. To the depths that you know that you are owned and that you belong and that you are cherished and delighted by God, you can get rid of your monuments because God's love, his praise, his delight in you is enough. Jesus, the true king of kings, he didn't take power, he gave up power. He didn't take lives, he saved lives. He didn't usurp power to claim the throne, he actually made himself weak to give us the throne. Do you see that? So that we can be kings with him. Plunge your self-image. Plunge your view of yourself, small in your own eyes, plunge that view of yourself into the grace of God. And though you are small in your own eyes, God will lead you to live a big life. You'll become great in his eyes, all by grace, all by grace. Will you do that? I'm gonna give you just very quick one-minute application. It's still, we're gonna stay on this C theme, okay, right? Community. Saul had Samuel. Samuel came to him and said, Saul, you know, what is this I see? What is this I hear? What's going on, Saul? There's a, a 
we have a deep need for real community in our lives. If you're involved in a community group, that's what that is. Your friends will be, friendships will be forged there where they will have the courage to be able to speak to you and say, what is this lowing of cattle that I hear in your life? Explain that to me. That's what it is. That's what it's about. Community. Now, there are people here who, um, if you're the kind of person you like to come to church just only when it's convenient, you know, you've got to be more consistent. Another C. You've got to be consistent. Consistent in church. You know, community, consistent, church, right? Um, on top of that, if you like church and if you are consistent, but you don't want to be held accountable, there's a lot of people like that, you need to connect. <laughs> Sounds so dumb. I, I'm, I'm not going overboard here, but it's so true. Community, I, I, it's, it's the only way, there's so many points here, I need to get you to remember this stuff, okay? You know, community, consistency, connection. And that's going to garner Courage. You're going to have the courage to face yourself. Will you do that? If you're not part of a community group, I'm imploring you. In this church, you can't form community by just coming here. I don't know how many times. Let that sink in. You are not going to form community by coming here. This is to congregate and worship the Lord. Right? If you want that to sink in, it happens in the context of community always. Through our community groups, they're going to be the vehicle for change. See, right? They're going to be the vehicle for, um, you know, all of the things that we do here in the city. See, right? That's what we're going to do. Will you do that? Will you commit to that? I hope it convicts you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> let's, let's pray. Let's pray together.